Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. Our mission is to uncover what it takes to build a unicorn business. For Season 3, we're speaking to some of the best founders, many from unicorn companies, and asking them about their journey, operational insight, tips, and lessons they've learned along the way. Today's episode is with Sasha Michel, co-founder at Glovo. Glovo is a startup that is transforming the way consumers access local goods, enabling anyone to get nearly any product delivered in under one hour. Glovo's on-demand delivery platform connects customers with local couriers who purchase and deliver goods from any restaurant or shop in a city. Now, since the time of recording, there's been a big announcement, which is that Delivery Hero has acquired a majority stake in Glovo at a 2.3 billion euro valuation. This is a huge deal for a European venture and really exciting that we've got Sasha on. We obviously didn't cover the deal, but we get to hear about how he's built the company. Some really interesting stuff. So let's get started. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Hi, thanks. Thanks for the invite. Pleasure. It's our pleasure. So we always like to get started by asking our successful founder guests, what does entrepreneurship mean to you? It's a pretty wide question. To me, it's anyone who, who really starts a business and in some way or another is creative or disruptive in the way they're tackling the problem. And entrepreneurship has been very associated in the last couple of decades to tech companies, I think. But a friend of mine told me when I was very young, you know, when I was starting for them, an entrepreneur was... Could, be somebody who opens a high street store next to another high street store selling the absolute same things. And who's going to sell more is the one who's more creative. And that to me is, is a good example of something very simple, but is equally entrepreneurial. Now, if you have two stores on the same street next to each other and they're selling it, the one who's going to sell more is going, going to be the more creative person. I think that to me is and creative and disruptive and, and, you know, fixing things that are broken, optimizing things maybe that before technology. And how technology can be done is this thing. And that's pretty much my definition. It's pretty wide. Entrepreneurship covers so many things. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I think probably entrepreneurs aren't given enough credit for their creativity. But you have been a serial entrepreneur with a few other bits and pieces sprinkled between your endeavors. Did you, did you always think you were going to be an entrepreneur? Uh, and what keeps on drawing you back? It's probably in my DNA. I'll give you an example. I was, I've traveled quite a bit as a child. Um, like I grew up for three to four years in Central America and there was a, you know, I think it was 10 and there was a local market and I started selling popcorn. But when I went, moved back to the UK, I was, I used to do newspapers and help milkmen and things like that, which is very two worlds, but it's unheard. So I've always been doing things and since a very young age, so I think it's, it's in my DNA. But to be honest, when I came to Spain, I was, I used to be a racehorse jockey in the UK and and the US. So I came to Spain and I wasn't planning to stay, but I really loved the country and I said, wow, what am I going to do? So luckily I decided to learn computer program, which turned out to be a very correct decision. And then as I didn't really have much of a career in, in computers and I didn't have a university degree or, or anything like that, to really move very quickly, the only way was to create my own job. So it was sort of, you know, how can I do something. And so I, I was lucky the internet came along when I set up a little company, went quite well and, and I've never looked back. So it's, it's more a lot about being in the right place at the right time, 
bit, a lot of luck as usual with everything people are doing. So, I mean, that's really how I got into it. And since then, obviously it's so much fun to have an idea and try and make it work and it doesn't always happen, but that, um, that's the most important thing for me, really enjoying it. And so you mentioned there you were a jockey. So, I mean, what does the experience of being a pro athlete and now being a founder, what, what's similar about those types of things? And what have you, what did you take and learnings that made you, made you a better founder? And that takes me on to the, the sort of question we actually ask a lot of people, which is, what do you think gives you an edge as a founder? What do you think makes you a great founder? First of all, I wouldn't consider myself a great founder. I generally surround myself with great founders. I'm very good at surrounding myself with really good talent. I think that's my don. I think I've become very good at choosing people. And very early on, in fact, my first company, the first person I hired turned out to be a rock star. Going back to the first bit of racing, I think there's two things, specifically the sport I was in, which is, although it's very individual because it's, it's one person on the horse, but there's a lot of teamwork. There's a trainer, there's obviously the horse, there's yourself and there's the people around. So I think there's a lot of teamwork and then discipline. In racing, there's a lot of, a lot of discipline, not only sports-wise, but also, I mean, weight. You know, jobbers to get their weight down, they have to control it. So there's quite a lot of discipline, early hours. So I think those, those are two things. I think teamwork and being focused and disciplined, I think are quite good traits that you can take. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, we, we were actually just talking as a team this morning about the types of people we like to invest in. And it often is people who've like excelled at other things than business, you know, people who've set big goals in other areas of life and have succeeded. And I think it's kind of a signal for like expansive minds. And it goes back to the creativity point. I think it's a signal for that. So no, really, really, really good to hear about your various different careers. Had you had any major successes prior to Glovo? in business or was that really the first great success uh, and what do you think made it was it the idea or was it the ability to put into action what you'd learned from previous businesses you know i've had a couple of successes but one a reference i think in the time which was in the the late 90s i was co-founders of a company called latin red which in its day was a type of yahoo in spanish we launched it from barcelona but by the name of the product, it just grew virally in Latin America. So we became the largest Spanish speaking portal of services in the world at the time. We had, you know, free email, chat, homepages, search, typical array of services. Um, and we ended up selling that to our, our main competitor, which was a company called Star Media, which went, flowed on the NASDAQ. They had much less traffic than us, but they had a lot of money and we had all the traffic. So from them, it was, it was an ideal match because then they can suddenly show that they were leading the market specifically Latin America. And that one today was, was a big thing. It was the biggest sale, I think, for a Spanish company at the time, tiny compared to today's numbers, but that was a success. And I stayed with Star Media for two years and I ended up being a CTO and, um, they were based out of New York, but we built most of the technology out of my team in Barcelona. And then that ended up being bought by France Telecom and Orange today, which is Orange and, um, I ended up being with them for, I think a year and a half, which again, I, you know, that's a good example of going back to entrepreneur, you know, it was a, a massive conglomerate, no France telecom also, and it's something that I didn't really have a, a fit the, the way I work and my dynamics, you know, didn't really fit into an organization so structured and in a way slow to make decisions, which is general, you know, these big companies and I'm saying it's wrong. It's just that some people fit into that and, and some don't, I, I definitely don't. Yeah, absolutely. Different cultures for different people. 
and a lot of the founders we have on are definitely hungry for speed. Um, so Sasha, what is the mission statement at Glovo? Where do you want to take it? And has it been the same since day one or has it evolved over time? We, we don't have a mission statement. And in fact, we have a vision, which is to give everyone easy access to anything in, in your city. So I think there's a few key words there, no, anything. So we've always been multi-category. This has become very popular now as the food delivery companies are moving into groceries and they're moving into pharmacy and they're moving into retail. We've been doing that from day one, everyone. So I think there's also a component there that's super important, as in, if you want to get to everyone, you know, cost is very important. So to get access to goods has to be fairly cheap, unless you want to go to a pure segment. And then city, I think, you know, we're hyper-local, so we're not a logistics company. We're not somebody who's going to start moving things across the country and everything. We're very hyper-local cities, towns, smaller towns now as we evolve. So I think that's our vision. We don't really have a mission statement. Maybe we'll create one one day when we know, but, um, I think that really defines what we are as a, as a company and what we do in, in the 24 countries where we operate today. I think you're right in so. We had 23 countries down. Obviously, that's out of date. It's now 24, about 900 cities, um, according to our research, but not London. So is there is there a reason for that? And why not London yet? You know, without obviously giving away too much. Yeah, what, what, what are your plans there? And what what do you use as the sort of criteria for moving into new cities and new new geographies? Yeah, actually, we're launching London next week. No, Joe, <laughs> we're not. Um, it's a simple reason, or two simple reasons, I think. First of all, sometimes, you know, we're seen now as this unicorn and in Spain, as a funded company, we've received the highest amount of funding for any Spanish company, but yet we're still very tiny compared to pretty much all our competitions as far as market size, funding, valuation. And we're talking like Delivery Hero, Uber, et cetera. These are billionaires, you know, just eat takeaway, for example, when you merge it. So we're competing against companies that are much bigger than us, have a lot more capital. So we have to choose our battles. So that one's a pretty easy one. And then number two, we do have a focus on markets where we believe we can lead or at least be very close to leadership. And we think there's a lot of value in leadership. We're three-pronged marketplace, the consumer, the customer who's, who wants something. We have the stores, restaurants to actually, you know, want incremented sales. And we have our, our courier home blowers that actually, you know, make it all work. So the more demand we can give our stores, the better we can work with them. So they're happy with us, with the preferred platform. We can give more, more jobs to the couriers. So they're earning more, so they can earn more per hour. And all that makes that then we have the best service. We have the best content. We have the best partners in the city and that reverts the customers then again. So there's a lot of value, I think, in being, you know, one of the top two. So that's our, that's the two main reasons why we choose the markets we've been in. So, so we won't be going to the UK anytime soon. We won't go into the US. We won't go into Asia, very competitive markets where the cost of entering and to, to get to those first two positions is very expensive. And, you know, we're not that size company yet. You, you mentioned capital raising there. I mean, you have been still very successful at capital raising, as you said, the, the most funded uh, Spanish company. So, what would you say has helped you raise that amount of money? And is there any advice you would give to 
founders earlier in their journey about how to fundraise, tips and tricks along the way, and how do you make rounds competitive and how do you land a, like a mega round like some of the rounds you've done? Internally, we're, we're actually quite critical of our fundraising. I don't think we've done a great job. And I think it's not only our fault. I think being born out of Spain, I think there's been no massive success stories. That's one of the things I think VCs look a little bit at, less so now, but certainly, you know, they like references. They like a good ecosystem. And you guys should know that better than me. I think that that has been a handicap. What, one question we've asked is, you know, how is this small Spanish company going to be, be able to compete against these giant companies now? And the doubt that we would be able to. So I think we've struggled to fundraise. It's been tough to get to where we are today. You know, one of our rounds we had, I think it was 99 no's and then we finally got a yes. So it just shows you. So I would say that. And then, you know, I get asked the question about, you know, what advice and to be honest, we haven't been able to be that choosy with our investors, but I think it's very important to get investors on if you can, and not all, you know, I mean, not all startups can choose, right? So that's one thing. And it's not just there's free money out there and you can just go and pick it generally the other way around. So I think try and get investors who are very aligned with your vision, knowing how you want to build a company. I think that's key because they're going to be your partners, right? And when, when you have to make tough decisions, when things are going easy, it's, it's easy. But when things get tough, that's when you really want good partners in your corner to help you and not want to jump or be, you know, so I think that's, if you can, I think, you know, that would be my my main advice. Yeah. And obviously you've now built Glovo into a multi-billion dollar company. What have been the hardest things building a huge business? And our listeners always like anecdotes, you know, examples of times where things have gone wrong or been really difficult. Can you think of any times where that's been the case? Yeah, I, th I think that the toughest for us as, as founders, I think, because we're both very people, people um, and the team and the engagements, you know, when you have to close a market, we closed down Brazil, Egypt, Turkey, for example. So these are markets where, again, we, we took a decision that the cost of opportunity of growing those markets to become leader or pro-leader were huge and probably the best option was to invest those funds somewhere else. So those are tough decisions because you have local teams super engaged, often in their own little startup, known country, doing very well as well. They're growing, so they're doing absolutely nothing wrong. And, and you have to choose your battles, what I said earlier. And I think that's the tough one, no? But also in, you know, it's also, we, we learn a lot from mistakes, no? I think from going regions, expanding very quickly, and then suddenly saying, whoa, um, you know, you haven't entered this market well, and you learn from that and then you build the playbook so you build a better playbook the next country you launch so there's been a bit of that as well which i think is really good and some of the best learnings we've had has been you know specifically I mean, brazil for example is a country we launched very quickly very aggressively and we quickly realized well so that that was great learnings for the company we learned from that definitely and, and is it is one of the challenges with that keeping morale Hi, what, what's the response from your employees when something like that happens? Well, I think we're a very transparent company and we're so, you know, there's a general acceptance that, you know, this is not a magical one that we're going to do everything right. But I think there's an understanding of what our strategy is and we're very open and transparent about it. And we're going to have tough decisions to make in the future and we've had yesterday, but I think we're in a good place now. 
as far as, you know, funding, but, but strategically how we're doing in, in the regions where we operate. Got great local teams, amazing. We run the business with a lot of autonomy, so we give a lot of strength and decision-making to the local teams of how to run their business. I'm not from headquarters, you know, I was in Africa, in Ghana and Ivory Coast, to our, our markets there, and you can see how the teams really know their markets. And what am I going to tell them from headquarters how to run those businesses? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And giving people that kind of responsibility and accountability, I'm sure is a good way to go. You mentioned a couple of times the importance of people. I mean, it's pretty much a theme that's run through every answer. Is there any role or team that you wish you'd hired earlier in the journey that would have helped growth and support the plans earlier? Yeah, I mean, no, no surprise tech. I mean, we're always going to be short of engineers, probably capable of doing 15% of what we really want to do. But if I had 10 times as many engineers, I'd be doing a lot more, but I'd still have the only doing 15%. And I think that's any tech company. And, you know, now we're, we're really building that out and growing it. And we've got obviously our main tech hub is in Barcelona, but we've, we've also got a tech hub in Warsaw now. We've opened a second one in Spain, Madrid, Kiev. So we're expanding that much quicker. Would have loved to have done that sooner. There's a couple of reasons. Partially, we should have focused on building out the tech team maybe earlier, but second as well, at the end, you need capital to do that, no? So to a certain extent, and certainly in the beginning, we didn't have enough funding to hire 50 engineers. So we had to make do with what we had. So there's that, that's probably one. And maybe HR, I think, you know, we've got a great, you know, leader of our people team now. And, and I think it would have been great to have that fairly early on. But the importance of having the team engaged, we're, you know, we're over 3,000 employees now. So I think that's, that's clear. And there's often in startups early on, it's not given the value that, that it should. And maybe, and then to be honest, maybe we wouldn't have been able to hire a rock star early on because we were so early on. So those rock stars can generally choose where they want to go and they probably wanted to make it. So there's also a bit of that. And when's the right moment where you can bring in the right people and attract the right talent. And it's not always about economics and it's about, you know, where you are as a company and, and the potential you have. There's a stat about the US bringing in head of people much earlier than we traditionally have done in Europe, but we're starting to see that change. So it's really interesting that that's the case of you guys. That's interesting. I hadn't read that. I'll check that one out. Thanks. Yeah, I always really like hearing about how founders think about product and kind of in the context of there being a permanent shortage of engineers. Do you think the users of the app would kind of notice a change had you, if you did have access to all of the engineers you wanted, or is it other changes that you would have made and the product you would have built with enough engineers have been mostly in the background? And what would it have looked like? How different do you think Glover would be if you had all of the engineers that you wanted? There's probably two things, you know, I don't think on the general interface or, or what they see, or maybe the flow of, you know, ordering on our platform would have changed that much. Probably made more, more around operations, you know, optimizing the different part of the delivery process, the algorithms, um, we are algorithm dispatching algorithms called Jarvis. So I think that would have been much more efficient and that's key to make sure, you know, that the orders work better. The customer has a better UX because it's not just about having a great UX in the app. And at the end of the day, we, we deliver things, you know, we get things from partners and so optimizing that, that would inevitably benefit the courier because if it's more efficient and he'll have more orders or, or get the better orders and then be able to earn more. So it's, it's a mix of, of things. And then maybe you could launch, you know, we're multi-category, 
know, we have been, obviously, restaurant food is our number one category, but groceries is our second, but we also do any retail and more and more high street retailers like clothes now are joining the app. They see the opportunity of on-demand pharmacy, et cetera. So I think we could probably enhance and go quicker with multi-category, some segments, which have a very different UX for the customer than maybe ordering a pizza. And Sasha, every company nowadays is sort of looking at quite similar metrics across sort of CAC and LTV and retention and things like that. But every company has a slightly different way of viewing those in terms of a kind of North Star metric. So what's your North Star metric? Is it number of users, number of deliveries? Like what are you guys constantly striving towards and and measuring towards? It's a mixture of everything, right? You want to acquire customers to the platform that are valuable known, and then you want to retain them. So it's a mixture. I don't think it's one. There's no point growing at all costs, right? Because you can just throw money at that problem. It's identifying bringing valuable customers. So we're not a promo driven company. We, we obviously do promotions to some customers or with some partners, for example, we do activity, but we're not a promo driven. We generally think that, you know, the quality of the, the users generally less valuable because they've come in because they've got a freebie, right? And then tomorrow you can bet it off with them another freebie and they'll just jump. So, so we, we mix, I think, to be fair, a lot of the key metrics, but I think our, you had to say one where our market team is obsessed in is bringing valuable customers and we're going to stay around. Really interested, Sasha, I think you've spoken publicly about, you know, how, how important sustainability is to you. I wonder if there's any tension between, you know, your keenness on being sustainable and, and running a business that delivers stuff that otherwise might have been picked up on foot or by other potentially more sustainable means. So how, how do you guys think about sustainability? You know, our social impact team, it's quite big for the moment at the stage of the company is so it's important and actually reports into me, which doesn't mean that much, but it does assume that it's quite important for the company. I think there's two answers to this. So when we started early on with Oscar, you know, in the first year, we wanted to look at the sustainability of the business and how we could get better. And he, he made a very good reflection at the time. He said that we can focus on a lot of different things right now, but we're probably not going to build a massive company that's going to have massive positive impact. So why don't we focus on that and then we can have even better positive impact. And that's a little bit what we did. And now for the last two years, we've been really focusing on not just sustainability from a you know, carbon neutral perspective, but also the positive impacts of our ecosystem, how we can be identified for our careers, how it can be a trampoline. We don't believe it's the job of their life. We believe we can help them move on to another job. We've got job boards from our partners that help them. You know, they're looking after six months with us. They income, they want to move on to something else, which is maybe indoors or something that we, we're giving that opportunity. We've got online training courses for them. So th there's a lot of things about us that's all about social or positive impact. Going back to more the planet part of it, well, our deliveries have been carbon neutral. We compensate them for over a year now, but at the end of this year, as a company, we'll be carbon neutral. So we're reducing, but at the same time, we're not reducing enough. So therefore we compensate what we have and reduced. And then from a business perspective, I feel very comfortable with what we do because 30% of groceries worldwide are picked up in a car today. And many of the things we do and deliver might not be done on foot. And then in many of our cities, Barcelona, for example, I mean, 70% are bicycles. And there's a tendency as well to move to electronic bicycles as they advance, as the technology becomes cheaper. So there's a lot of cities now 
where couriers, it makes more sense for them to be using electronic bicycles than a motorbike. So that's happening anyway. We're going to obviously push that more proactively as the more resources we have to do that. And it depends on the region. So I think we're moving the right way. I think we're definitely having a massive positive impact. Another good example of positive impact, in my opinion, is digitalization of SMEs. You know, I think it's fair to say that retailers pretty much in the last commercial to actually join this thing, you know, online. And I think COVID has accelerated that. And we're definitely a part of that. The first sale of many of these stores have done online has been through us. So we're definitely having an impact in that. And I think there needs to be something done because things are moving very quick online. So we're also having a positive impact on SMEs. And as I said earlier, you know, of our global partners, and we work with a lot of the big chains, but 90% of our partners are, are in fact, small businesses with pretty much one or two establishments. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And hopefully more and more startups will start following suit and, you know, making impact an important piece of their strategy. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed seeing more and more of the kind of delivery vehicles turning electric and loads of the mopeds now as well are electric, which is just great to see. And if, and if you want to see some of the stuff we're doing, we have a project called Global Access, which what we're doing is giving our platform and make it available to NGOs, to local councils, to nonprofits, so they can basically plug into our platform. Our platform, not just our technology, it's our couriers, but also our partners end up engaging with our partners. And, and obviously we want to get our, our customers as well to be part of that. And you can look on like Global Access, we have a website and you can just see some of the projects we've done worldwide, uh, the funding put into that, how many deliveries, social deliveries we've done, and we're going to be continue investing in that. And our dream, you know, in our KPIs and our OPRs to have maybe 5% or 10% of our, our delivery for social calls at some point. Yeah, that's great. Definitely good initiative from Glovo. And yeah, as Hector said, hopefully we'll see more large scale up companies doing more and more and also lobbying as well and using their commercial power to have an impact. So, you know, opening up more cycle lanes in cities and things like that, I'm sure is things that you guys are probably looking at. Just slightly away from Glovo, you are also an angel investor in a few companies. So I was interested to kind of just get your view as one is, you know, being a founder yourself, you know, how much does that help you when looking at angel investments? And secondly, what do you look for? And do you like to invest in people who are very similar to you? Or do you like to invest in people that are sort of wildly different and doing something that you would never sort of end up going and doing? And you'll so you're happy to put your capital to work on projects that you wouldn't ever really get involved in? Unfortunately, I'm very systematic. I'm probably a terrible investor. For me, the, the, the first and most important question is, is the founding team. I have to like them, not like them as in because they're smart, but like them actually, you know, that feel like, you know, I wouldn't mind going for a beer with these guys. I mean, I wouldn't mind working with these people because I think, you know, you have to have a good vibe, I think, with, with the people you, you work with. I think, so I think that's, that's one that, you know, apart from being you know, focused and sharp and you think, so that's, and then it's the project it has to fit in with, with me, with my, you know, with my persona that it's, it's fun. And then, yeah, that, I mean, apart from that, that's pretty much it. Lately, I, I stopped when I was, when we set up global, I just didn't have time. I'm quite hands-on with founders. I like to be very active. And so I, for a few years, didn't invest in pretty much anything because I was fully focused, but lately, and one of the great things about global is now we've had um, I think over 30 now, ex-employees set up funded startups, so not just an idea pitching. They've, they've received external funding, which is fantastic. Some really good ideas out there, and I think some of them can be big successes. 
And then I just talked about this yesterday, actually, that today we have over 3,000 employees. So imagine how many startups are going to actually come out of global. Because this is this has come out of a company with 100, 200 employees and 300 now. So that's amazing. And we obviously like to help them. And also going to be like, we get, have an opportunity to invest in some of the global ecosystem. We, we like that. So I'm getting quite active, small tickets. And um, but I think generally it's the, it's the team and, and obviously the project fits in with my personas. So it's not very mathematical, unfortunately. There's no reason for it to be mathematical. I think it's good. But we'll see. Sasha, yeah, it's really cool that you've got employees and people from the ecosystem coming out and setting up their own companies. I mean, it's as the company that's raised the most money in Spain, you obviously actually hold quite an important kind of pillar within the tech ecosystem there. So it's great. that's great to hear. The tech hub, it should be, you know, I mean, it's an amazing city. They've got a historic entrepreneurship building you know, some of the biggest Spanish companies been born in, in Barcelona, Catalonia. And also it's a great place to live. So more and more, you know, Europeans, even a lot of Americans now coming to work for tech companies here. And it's an amazing place to mix uh, entrepreneurship projects, tech projects with the great lifestyle. And, you know, and then to see some of these ex-employees that stay here, often they're not Spanish or they're not from Barcelona, stay here to build a startup is also just makes us really proud. So we, we always like to do uh, the dinner party guest game with our guests and we ask them to pick three people who they would like to ask to a business lunch or a business dinner um, and they can be whoever you want. Who would you invite? Well, let's make it a dinner. It's more fun than going later. So I generally do this anyway. I invite random people who are very different and they often don't know each other beforehand and it becomes quite fun most of the time, not always. But anyway, so so I think I've, I've put my three passions. So I'm I'm... Always been an amazing fan of Bill Gates, probably for my age, because I saw Microsoft, what it was doing. And, and I think he's been an astounding tech leader. And not many people know this, or maybe they do, but Apple, when they were going bankrupt, he literally bailed them out. And he said, you know, the plant's a better place with, with Apple in it. So he, you know, I think, you know, from Microsoft invested and saved Apple. Now Apple then later became the most valuable company in the world. But, and also he was, I think his peak, he was able just to cut and suddenly dedicate the rest of his life for social causes. And I think he's always a reference. He built a company with, and overtook a company with a much worse product, um, you know, windows, and it was nothing compared to Apple yet. He was able to do that. So that's, you know, when you've got the best product and the best team, but when you, when you don't even have the best product and you're able to do that, just says something about them. So that's one person I think from the tech space that I've always been a fan and I think you learn a lot from him in, in the dinner. Also, I'm a big sports fan. Obviously, I used to race, but I'm a big sports fan. And, and I think it would be quite fun to invite Eric Cantona. He's a personality that I think very different, you know, from football. I think he's a philosopher. He's an actor. I think he's controversial. I think he'd bring a lot of fun conversation to the table. And I think that would be a good mix. And then finally, music. I'm, I can't sing. I can't play anything. But my dad was a musician, and I've always had music. No, not many people know him. I put Gil Scott Heron, and he actually died. But he was, he was a poet who began mixing music in, in the seventies and I think they called him sometimes the start of rap to a certain extent. And, um, and he had a lot of problems. He was heroin addict and everything. So, but he was a very great visionary on, on people's rights and everything. I think those three would make a funny conversation. It'd be a great dinner. Are you, is it going to be tapas or what's on the menu? Yeah, I think I'm, I, I like actually cooking. Yeah. I, I, I'd probably cook a rabo de toro if there's no vegetarian, which is oxtail stewed. It's a typical dish in Spain. If it's done well, it's absolutely amazing. 
That sounds awesome. Send a piece back to London. <laughs> Great. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the on the show, Sasha. We've really enjoyed hearing a bit about the operational side of running a multi-billion dollar company and, and setting one up and you know all the issues and excitement that comes along with that. It's been a real, real pleasure and hope you've enjoyed it too. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been, it's been a great conversation. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RidingUnicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.